church. And then it was my second son. I was thinking three years ago he was born, and that was the start of my regular uh, preaching ministry here. So it's been about three years. We've been through First Thessalonians, uh, First Peter, John, Ezra. Finally, finally we come to someone who's Italian in the Bible. Let's turn with me to the book of Malachi. In the last book of the Old Testament. And, and before you get worried, I know he's not really Italian, but let me dream for a moment. The Romans are the only ones I can claim. Uh, Malachi, in fact, was a Jew. And the word itself is Malachi, which comes from messenger or my messenger. In fact, some have debated about whether this is supposed to be his personal name or rather just a statement. Uh, my messenger delivers the word of the Lord. I, I think if you look at the other prophets, it seems clear that this is, uh, being, this is Malachi being named. This is a man named Malachi, which means uh, messenger or my messenger. And so we are going to take several weeks to go through the book of Malachi. And this morning we do an overview of the book and then come back and look at the details in the next several weeks together. First, though, before I read just the first verse and a half, let me give you a little bit of the background. You may be unfamiliar with Malachi. In fact, it's largely unfamiliar with most people. In fact, we quote the verse about tithing anytime we get a chance, but for the most part, Malachi is relatively unknown, and it's probably the last book written in the Old Testament. It definitely comes in the last prophetic era. Zechariah and Joel might be in there as well. It comes in the same era of Israel's life. And consider Israel's history for a moment to best appreciate the book we're going to study. Now, it starts with Genesis 3.15 and the promise that he will send a Savior. And then everything that plays from that time in Genesis 3, that gospel message given in Genesis 3, is a tie to that covenant commitment of God to save a people for himself. Abraham is where we think of it coming into its fullest form, at least uh, to that point in Genesis 12 and 17, where I will be your God and you will be my people. And that happens about 2,000 years before Jesus. That is the time of Abraham. Now, Abraham lives. He has Isaac, and there's Jacob, and there's Joseph. And we come to the time where they go to Egypt. Moses then leads them out of Egypt after a time of incubation where there's over 2 million people in the nation of Israel. So to this point, it's now 1445 approximately, before, uh, years before Christ, 1445 years before Jesus. And Moses leads the Israelites out of slavery. You have all these pictures of redemption happening. All these occasions where God is interceding and reminding the people that he is their God and that despite their unworthiness, he's going to make them a people unto himself. And he's building this salvation history through the Old Testament. Time and time again, he's faithful. You know what happens after Moses. Joshua's campaign begins. They take over much of the land, but they don't do everything God says. And there's these seeds of uh, wickedness that are still there. And the nation struggles. They struggle through the time known, we call it, as the judges, uh, the cycle of sin. And then they're finally given a king, Saul, then David, and then Solomon. One kingdom under David, probably its highest point at the beginning of Solomon's reign. But Solomon, uh, soon the seeds that were sown early on, start showing in his life in the nation splits. You have the northern kingdom, who is soon taken by Babylon or by Assyria. Obviously, the northern kingdom didn't have a good king. They never really walked with the Lord, and they were judged shortly thereafter, some 750 years before the time of Christ. The southern kingdom had a few good kings, a couple faithful kings, and they did okay. Hezekiah, you remember the great stories of deliverance under his reign. He was one of the southern kings. 
But even Jeremiah, the prophet, starts speaking about the demise of the southern kingdom as morally, morally they slipped and they slipped. They grew out of appreciation of God's covenant for them. In fact, I'm going to submit to you that uh, sin, whether it be the sin of legalism or the sin of theological liberalism, it always comes back to our understanding of God's covenant of grace. What is grace will determine your life, will determine what you do. It was true of the southern kingdom as they lacked appreciation for that covenant. They, they dropped in their morality and God brought oppression to them. And Babylon took them, much like Assyria took the northern kingdom years before. Then Persia took over Babylon. Interestingly, though, God works again to relieve his people. And after 70 years of being under Persian rule, Babylonian rule, they're now given the ability to go back to their land and start their lives again. Now, they wouldn't be the prominent nation they once were, but they would be given the freedom to go rebuild the walls. You remember Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilding the walls and then the temple. They are now at their place of worship. Many had moved back and now could live there. You would think it would be a great time of revival. In fact, there was periods of revival through it. Haggai confronts the people as they uh, fail to finish the temple. Then through his prophecy, they finish the temple. Great times of revival occurring. Then years set in. Some of the old patterns redevelop. The spiritual fire starts to dim. Sin creeps in. And we have Malachi, who writes to the people of God who have become complacent. They've fallen out of love with God. Quite frankly, they've lost the fire. The message of Malachi for us is the same today. If you've lost the fire, how do you appreciate or have you forgotten God's great covenant of grace for you. I'm not talking grace in just a general, I mean, the totality of what God has done for you in our spiritual forefathers to this point in your own family, your own personal life, and what he'll continue to do for us, his people in the future. If we lost appreciation for that, that is the message of Malachi. Remember that I have loved you, he says. Hear now God's word in Malachi 1 as we start just an overview this morning, an introduction as it were to Malachi, verse 1, and then the very verse, first part of verse 2. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Notice what he says, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Let us pray. Lord, right in this first verse, we see a lack of appreciation or a lack of grasping the depth and the width and the height of your love for us and your covenant commitment made before time. Pray, O oh God, that we would be motivated, fueled, and founded, and founded upon that covenant of grace. In particular, how it reaches us as individuals and as families and in, in this world that we live in. We're now called your church, your people. Pray, O oh Lord, that we would be reignited, that if there is a fire that has gone out, that it would be reignited, that if there is a commitment that needs to be made, that we would be recommitted, that there would be covenant renewal that would happen as a result of the message that Malachi preached so many years ago, yet is so relevant today. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In your version, you probably have it beginning with the oracle of the word of the Lord or the message of the word of the Lord. And those are good translations, but I believe this is one instance where the King James does us very well. It captures a nuance of the Hebrew word that you don't get by saying oracle. Uh, oracle is kind of mysterious, hard to it's kind of nebulous, maybe mystical a bit. Message is very general. We use message for all sorts of things. But the burden of the word of the Lord, now that's the right way to put this Hebrew term. 
because there is, in, there is inherent with a message from God a burden that comes. That is, it's a burden because it confronts culture whenever it comes. It's still a burden of the Lord, the prophetic burden today when we preach the word of God because it's against the backdrop of a sinful culture. So it's going to carry with it a burden. Both the one delivering it and the message itself will be a burden in that it calls us to account. It reminds us. It sets us straight. It causes us to correct our path. So we have before us in these weeks to come the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel, God's people, the church in the Old Testament by Malachi. Now, I want to give you a picture that helps me understand the gist of, uh, of the demeanor, the, the mood, if you will, that was going on. I think you can relate with this. I could just say it simply, and have you ever seen a spoiled child who's been given everything, and then when they can't have one more thing, they fall down to the ground and start kicking and screaming about what they don't have? To a degree, that's what we have happening here. And before we get high and mighty, think of our own lives and what we think towards God in times where we don't think we've been dealt with fairly by God. How is that a lot different? Well, we'll look at that in a moment. But let me give you a, a, a picture of it that those of you who have teenagers will appreciate. And those who uh, have been teenagers, which is a lot of us here, you will probably remember a similar construct in your own life that really illustrates what's happening. My parents, I, I grew up in a home where my parents both worked hard and they, were, they, they demanded a lot, but it was never unreasonable. And it was always in the context of their clear love for me. Uh, but they had very clear expectations, and my father was a really bottom-line kind of guy. He said, these are the grades that you need to get in these classes in order to maintain the privileges that you'll get. And to his credit, he gave me a lot of privileges. As I would prove myself respons uh, with responsibility, he did give me a lot of uh, freedoms and privileges that I enjoyed. And they, but they gave me really specific directions on what they expected in various forms, various aspects of my life, particularly schoolwork. They weren't unfair, not unreasonable. Never doubted once, not once, their love for me. They were great parents in that respect. But I remember falling miserably short on one of those requirements one time. Miserably short. Dismally short. And I remember coming home, and now for some of you, the father is the one who does the lectures, or the mother is the one who does the lectures. I don't know what it's like in your house. In my house, both did the lectures. My mom would get home 30 minutes before my dad, almost like clockwork, Right as I was coming in, she already had the report card on the table and looked up at me and started it right away. 30 minutes straight, she started it. And if you know my mom, she's not, uh, you know, she, she's pretty soft-spoken, uh, no more than five feet tall, and she's looking up at me, telling me for 30 minutes what this would mean that I got a D in this particular subject for the rest of my life, what it would mean. I lost several freedoms right in that 30-minute period. She started taking them away. Just as she finished, I thought I got away. I turn around, go up the stairs, and I hear the door shut because my dad pulls in the garage. Then I see, as if she has to show him this, I see the silhouette of her, her showing uh, the particular grade. Like he wouldn't know exactly where to look on the card. Thanks, Mom, I needed that. And he looks up right away, and he starts walking. I hear his work boots stomping towards the steps, and so I thought it doesn't do any good to go upstairs. I might take it like a man. So I was standing on the stairs, and he was down, kind of like the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was down in the boat, and the crowd was up. I was up, and he, 30 more minutes, an hour total. My sister came and went like six times just to hear what was going on. By the time he was done, he took away all the freedoms I had before. And for, in fact, technically speaking, I am still grounded today as a result of that. That's how much. 60 minutes of just a diatribe, of litany, of taking away things, things I couldn't do. I, you know, I just got my license, all sorts of things that happened. Now... 
looking back at it, you're watching that, or you see that happen in someone else's family, where that happens, where someone's grounded or discipline occurs because of something they did. You know, looking back, hey, these are good parents. They care about that child. That child, I wish he'd just appreciate how much those parents really love that, really love them, that they care that much to do that kind of thing. You see that looking out, looking in on it. How unreasonable it is that Tony would stomp off after he heard what his dad said. How unreasonable it would be for Tony to be angry with his parents. Look at all they had done for him. How could he be upset when they did something that they warned him about? They said, you can't do this because we're going to have to do this if you do this because we don't want you to walk down this path. Now, looking objectively, you can all say that makes sense. That's good parenting. It's consistent. It's loving. In fact, it's in line with their love for them. But as the person being there, as a 16-year-old teenager at that time, I did not see that love. I heard 60 minutes of a lecture. I wasn't evaluating whether it was true or not. I just saw them being upset with me in my mind, and I started construing it to mean they were trying to make my life miserable, in fact. And before, it snowballed to this point where they were just out to get me almost. Now, I'm sure you've never dealt with a feeling like that about your parents or you've ever felt that coming from a child. But how does the Lord feel, using the word feel in the most general sense, when his children, the ones he has bought with a price in the history of redemption, our forefathers, the way he delivered them, our history is there too. And yet they look up at him and he says, I've loved you. And you say, how have you loved us? Do you see how that stings to a parent who loves? You don't love me, mom or dad. What does that really say? That's what's going on in Israel's life. They have come to this point. A second exodus has occurred, if you will, from Persia now to the promised land. They've been given so much. Yes, there were many struggles they were still dealing with. The temple that was there now was a mere shadow of the one in Solomon's day. Uh, Their lives were not as easy as they were in the old days. They were under the rule of another nation. Many things were less than what they had been, but they lost those privileges because of what they did. Yet God still saw fit to bring them to a certain level, a certain level of prominence, not the one that was, but all they could look at is their external circumstances and grow further and further away from an appreciation for God's covenant love, his commitment to them. I believe that's what Malachi teaches us. It begs us to consider the faithfulness of God so that we might be committed anew, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, committed anew to the God who loves you, and that your obedience now will be lived in reaction to a genuine understanding and grasp of his appreciation for you. There couldn't be a more practical message for us. I know sometimes when you read the prophets, it can be difficult, even a bit depressing. remember going through a sermon series Uh, My pastor preached in St. Louis through Jeremiah. And every week I would say to Sherry, man, I wonder which sin of Israel is coming this week. And it was true because there are so many of them and they they related. But there was a certain level of depression that happens when you, 31 chapters of Jeremiah. Malachi is not that long, so relax. But it does have a poignant message for us. The activities or the lack of obedience, their lives reflect their understanding of God's grace to them. And I would submit to you that wherever you are in your life, As an individual, your reaction, your life, the things you do are in relationship to your understanding of God's love for you, his commitment for you, what he has done for you. I say the same as a family, and it's the same as a church. You know, we're looking to uh, do some pretty amazing things in so far as ministry expansion. Now's the time to have covenant renewal, to remind us of where we've been, and to see where God is going to take us. I want to look at the passage, or do an overview of the text today, and then we'll walk through it more closely in the weeks to come.
But I'd suggest to you that there's a pattern that develops in this disputation form that God uses through his servant Malachi. And really what we can boil it down is is to say this, that as the people of God forget God's covenant love for them, they grew lukewarm, mediocre at best in their walk with him. And you know what Jesus says about the lukewarm church. So they grew lukewarm at best. It's because they grew away from an appreciation or understanding of what God had done for them. Does this sound familiar? I think it does. It definitely does in my own life. What happens when we forget God's covenant love for us? I would suggest to you that the prophet identifies four things that happen to us when we forget God's covenant love. First of all, we stop worshiping. Remember, that's the central thrust of our lives. A right worship stops. That's the first thing to go when we misunderstand grace, when we misunderstand God's covenant commitment to us. Look at verses 6 through 10 in Malachi 1, and we see the results of forgetting God's covenant love. First, it affects our worship. Starting at verse 6 in chapter 1. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you? So now he's addressing worship, and look at who he talks to specifically. O priests who despise my name. So the very leaders of Israel who are to teach the truth and lead the sheep in the truth, they themselves are despising God's name. And of course the priests must have said, how have we despised your name? Verse 6. Verse 7. By offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, he will show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. What we have here is, it is a stopping of right worship. And it's because they are growing out of connection with the reality that God has loved them. And it comes in the first verse. The first verse, God says, I have loved you. And the people say, how? Show me. What have you done for me lately? I don't think you do. That's what it's saying. And he's saying the first way that this mindset has affected you is your worship because it stinks. That's what he says. It's not heartfelt. It's not from the heart. It's not in response to my covenant of love for you. How do we know this? Look what what is identified here. They're offering the non-sacrificial, that is crippled animals or blind animals. That is something that by its very definition is not a sacrifice they're giving. What I mean by that is this. If they had a blind or crippled animal, in many cases in those days, they would not eat, for instance, a blind animal because they believed that there was a disease that caused the blindness and they wouldn't want to eat it so that it would transfer to them, kind of the mad cow disease of old. So they would leave that alone. Instead, they were using it for sacrifices. You see what this teaches? No sacrifice. They wouldn't have eaten it anyway, so let's just give it to the Lord. See how profound that is, the statement? So they get blind animals. Now, What does the prophet say? Would your governor even take that? And what he means is this. In Malachi's day, Persia had a loose reign on Israel still. Persia was being threatened by Greece. Greece would soon take over Persia. So there was a real loose connection between the tax collectors and the people. In fact, they were lucky if they got any money out of the Jewish people at this time. They're always hard people to collect taxes from. We see that in the New Testament era. No different then. And so the governor in those days, it's said in some secular sources, that he was just happy to get anything from the Jews. And so do you see what that means in light of what's said here? Would your governor even take it? A governor desperate to get anything from you in taxes, he wouldn't even take the animals that you're sacrificing to me. 
Your worship is the first thing to go when you grow and disconnect with God's grace for you, what he's done for you, for us as God's people. They were offering crippled animals. They were offering the non-sacrificial. One commentator says it well. What was taking place was the ultimate contradiction in worship. Israel was offering non-sacrificial sacrifices. They were offering to God as sacrifices the things which they did not want themselves. Sacrifice is the giving up of something we genuinely value in order to express devotion and appreciation for God. How does it translate to us? Well, it does materially. We'll see that in a moment. But just the fact that time is of such value today. Is it true that we just give the time we can to God in worship? Just if we can, you know, we might if we have time. How is that much different than giving your, your crippled animals to the Lord? Why, why don't we give the best of our time? Or sometimes we may even say, I'm not going to give any time at all. I just don't have it this week. That mindset comes from forgetting God's covenant love for us and all its profound reality of what it took for him to secure us. Think if you were actually having to write a letter to, the, uh, to our Eternal Revenue Service or people collect taxes and you'd write a letter like this. How do you think they'd respond? Dear Department of Revenue, please accept this sick cow in lieu of the taxes I owe you. I trust the old bag will recover and prove more useful to you than she has to me. Frankly, I just can't spare anything more at the present time. And oh, yes, please look after those requests that I made. I trust that you will be able to improve our local roads, upgrade the quality of our education, and so on and so forth. How is it any different than when we say to God, we want this, this, and this from you, God? we got no time to give you, really. We don't have much devotion to offer you. There's too many other things pressing in. Wow, that's disconnected from God's great sacrifice for us. In Malachi's day, that's what was happening. It can happen in our own day. It does happen in our own lives. As we make worship, the actual act of worship, less and less a priority. They were offering the non-sacrificial, but you know something else that you may have saw, you may have seen when I spoke of this? They were also missing the point of the sacrifice. What was the point of the sacrifice, brothers and sisters? Was it going to save them? No. The blood of bull and ghost did not save them. But by giving their best offering the cleanest and most spotless lamb. It was the closest picture they could have of what it would cost God to save them, his own unblemished son. So to give a crippled animal is a statement about Jesus. To give less than your best in worship is a statement about Christ and your understanding of what it cost to send him. What happens when we forget God's covenant love for us? First, we stop worshiping. But second, second, we stop being witnesses. You'll see this parallel with the mission of our church, uh, worship being central. Uh, but we stop understanding God's covenant for us. What he's done, then we stop worshiping, and then we stop being a witness. Look at verse 17. And there are several verses that you can look at, and we will look at in the weeks to come, that have this underlying demeanor to them. And it speaks to the very witness of the people to a watching world. Malachi 2 verse 17 says this. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And that can be translated with your manner of speaking. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, and this is, by saying, meaning this is the demeanor, this is the way your verbiage goes. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. See what they're saying? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Now, what was happening apparently, and we can see this through the other uh, prophets as well. People were oppressed for various reasons. They were discriminated against as Israelites in this land. 
And there was a sense of futility that came over the people in their speech. And they would even publicly criticize God by saying that he wasn't faithful to them. Yes, we're supposed to be the God of Israel. Uh, God is, the God of Israel is supposed to be our God, but clearly the evil person gets no recompense for what he does. Uh, the good or evil, it doesn't make a difference. And this public criticism was going on that the prophet's speaking to. In their mind, they weren't saying anything. They're just complaining about their situation. They're complaining about the situation of their life. And I would submit to you that we should think differently about grumbling and complaining. Even if you don't say the words when you grumble and you complain about God, is it not a testimony to what you think about God's faithfulness? What I mean is, if at work someone hears you as the complainer and the groaner all the time, and you are known to be a Christian, what do you think your testimony is? Your testimony is that I say I'm a Christian, but I don't think he's faithful. That's what was happening in Malachi's day. We're the people of God. Yeah, good and evil doesn't make a difference to God. Where's the God of justice? Look what's happening. Our lives are not better. He may supposedly be our God, but public criticism goes forth from the mouths of people who are supposed to testify to his grace. They've grown disconnected now, grown disconnected to the covenant of grace, the covenant of his love for them. So when that happens, surely life is tough, and you lose perspective, and you become a grumbler and a complainer. You stop being a witness for him anymore in his faithfulness. Instead of seeing trials as a way in which to bring glory to God by recalling his faithfulness before the trial and during the trial in his future grace. Instead, you focus on, why are you doing this to me, God? Almost to say, I deserve better than this, God. And it grows more and more disconnected from what grace is and why we need it. And it leads us to stop witnessing. What kind of witness are you before a watching world? And, and I ask you this question. If I were to ask your co-workers what they would say about your demeanor, what testimony would that be to your God? How would they know what you believe by the way you carry yourself? Or what you say and what you do, do they match? What is your witness? And I would submit to you that your witness is only as strong as your personal grasp of what God's covenant love means and what it costs for you. This is a message to Malachi's day, and it is for us as well. If we've lost the fire to regain it, or if we have the fire to keep it burning, to constantly be re recall the depth of our sin, the need for God's covenant love, and the gratefulness that we have it. I'd also submit to you that we forget God's covenant love. When we forget God's covenant love, we stop supporting his work. Very tangible way of seeing where our heart is. Look at verse 6 in chapter 3. Malachi 3, starting in verse 6 down to verse 9. Probably the most obvious way we can see where our heart is. For where a treasure, your treasure is, your heart is there also. Malachi says in three, chapter 3, verse 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Did you catch that? I don't change. And you're lucky. Because if I did, and I gave you what you deserve, you would be consumed. But I don't change calling us to his grace once more. I don't change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you're not consumed. From the days of your father, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And notice what is the first indicator. He goes to the heart of the matter. It's uncomfortable to hear, but listen to what he says. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. 
there is no better way today. This, this is, resonates today. Our heart is where our treasure is. What we give to the Lord's work, whether it be our money, the time we give to the work, the, the gifts you've been given by God, how you utilize them, that indicates, my brothers and sisters, how you relate with God's grace, how you appreciate God's grace. It's a surefire indicator as to what you think about God. Wow, that's pretty, what you give? is Yes, and I didn't say it. God said it. And you know what he says? He calls it robbing God. Now, I remember a time in my life, especially in the college years, when I was barely making any money. And I constantly would battle this because I knew what the Bible said. I was sure that tithing was taught as a principle. And even I appreciated from time to time some dispensational way of explaining tithing only applies to the New Testament until I was shown that, okay, if you want to do the New Testament form of giving, what's that? Give everything. So I liked the tithing a little better. I went back to the tithing of the Old Testament that went through the New Testament. Jesus had an opportunity to condemn it. He didn't. So the biblical data was there. I knew it was true. But I said to the Lord subconsciously, I don't make enough. 10%, I cannot give that. I won't have macaroni and cheese some night because if I give up this 10%. And I justified it. I justified it in my mind. All the while, robbing God. And you say, well, robbing God of your measly few bucks? It's all his. All of it. He requires to give back a portion of it for the, for the particular use of the church in the furtherance of his kingdom. And when we don't, let's not color code it, it's stealing, it's robbing, it's taking what's, from, what's God's. It's that clear. And it's a surefire indicator of where our heart is. Someone told me to look at your checkbook, and it's harder now because we use debit cards. And I have more, if you look at my checkbook, cash withdrawal, cash withdrawal, cash withdrawal. I don't like writing checks for anything anymore. But in the day gone by, I remember when I did write checks for everything, and you could really, really see what was important to Tony by looking at those entries. You really could. Now, I don't want to look at yours any more than I want you to look at mine. But be honest with yourself. Where's our treasure? And if it's hard, if it's hard to part with our money, hard to part with time that we devote to the building of the church, hard to share our gifts, I would submit to you that it's probably because we have forgotten God's covenant love for us, his priceless gift to us that should demand our all with joy. Look what Malachi says would happen. What happened if they were obedient in this way? Look at verse 10 of chapter 3. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test. Put me to the test. Take me up on this, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. And notice the word need. This isn't a health and wealth thing I'm, I'm saying. But if we're giving, if we're doing what we ought to be, our needs will be met. I didn't say you'd get rich. I didn't say we'd get rich. I didn't say your diseases would be gone. I said you'd have what you need because that's what it said. They'll open up heaven. It'll give you what you need. And that's what we need, right? What we need. Not what we want necessarily or desire, but what we need. And he promises to never, ever stop giving you what you need when you're responding to him with this kind of sacrifice. Quickest application I give you to this is however you're doing it. Make the first thing you do when you get paid, make the first thing you do, that tithe check or that check to the Lord's the support of his ministry, I know this is true because it hurt, it hurt writing tithe checks, especially during college. And, and, but then I'll tell you what, when we got into seminary and we made a combined income of about $16,000 and I had a school bill that was $10,000, you'd think it would be really hard to write that tithe check. 
But I'll tell you what, I, I came to believe the tie check's the reason why we were getting through school on 16000 a year. Because it totally ordered the rest of our finances. Yeah, we had to make decisions, obviously. We weren't going to be able to do this or do that. But we never, ever had a lack for anything. And in times when it didn't, when there was way more month than there was check, some money came somewhere from someone supporting our, us being there at seminary. But never rob God. Don't make that the thing that you cut back on. KPNL will go on another month. But don't rob God. It, it goes to the heart of who we are as worshipers is the point. We'll have what we need. And this goes in relationship with our understanding of God's covenant that saved us. Finally, when we forget his covenant love, it affects our worship, it affects our witness, it affects our supporting of his work, and then finally, it makes us just to the point where we stop caring. I don't know how else to describe what's happening in Malachi, and you'll see it as we get there in the weeks to come. But the people just become futile in their thoughts. It's not just about witness anymore. It's they sit there in a funk of sorts where they just can't move and their, their view of the world is so tainted because they've grown more and more disconnected to God's love for them. Look at verses 13 through 15, right after the passage we just read. And you see this. We stop caring. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Kind of this, this exhausted way of saying. Verse 14, you have said it is, in va it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? Please see this for its full depth. What does it profit keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning? Do you see what they've done? They think that walking according to God's precepts is a way to get God's blessing. Don't get me wrong. Obedience begets blessing, but we don't do something so that God is then leveraged or required to give us back something. So when they didn't see God giving back the way they thought he should have been, they concluded that righteousness is to no avail. What does it profit us to be righteous? And that's the wrong question. What does it profit God when his people are righteous? That's the right question. What glory comes to God among the nations when his people are righteous? The question is, what profit does God get from all of my life? When we forget God's covenant love, we stop worshiping, we stop witnessing, we stop supporting his work, and we get to a point where we just stop caring. What we do flows from what we understand about God. Do you see the futility of this description of our forefathers, Israel. They were spiritually dry. Brothers and sisters, Malachi is a call to covenant renewal among God's people. It's a call to recommitment in reaction to God's grace to us. Only you can answer the particulars of your personal situation. But I would say the rest of the church depends on it. That is, the community is only as strong as we as individuals are engaging in covenant renewal in our own lives. Look at what God has done for you. Now, first of all, you have this which is the history of God's interaction with his people that is as alive today as it ever has been. And the chapter that you're in is written in heaven. But you take the baton, so to speak, from our spiritual forefathers and mothers, and you also have testimony to God's faithfulness to you. We have it in our forefathers here for us, once delivered to the saints. We've got it. So we can draw strength from it. That's the timeline I refer to you. But try something else. Try drawing yourself a personal timeline. And I mean, really, a personal timeline. Things, 
points in your life where you see God interacting with your family, with your life, doing something that shows his faithfulness to you, that you can draw upon in harder times. I've recently started writing a journal for my sons to have when I'm gone. Now, I'm not a good journaler, and I don't write real well in that sense, and it's really highlights, almost bullet points of funny things they say, spiritual things that they say, interactions we have together, things I'm trying to teach them that I may not be doing a good job now, but they can at least look back later and say, that's what Dad meant to say. And so those are all things that they highlight interesting things they say as well. And already in the months that I've been doing this, I can look back at it, especially in tough days with, with your children, and see, see a light that God showed in their life may not be as evident today, but boy, I see a pattern. I see some things happening here. And that has served as a, as a literal timeline for me of God's faithfulness to me and my family that gives me strength when tough times come. Think of your whole life that way. Talk about it. Talk about God's faithfulness in the past so that it lasts into the future, so that you don't forget God's covenant faithfulness to you in your salvation and in your life and in your family's life. Watch how that fuels what you do when you live in light of what God has done for you. The message of Malachi is this. If we're spiritually dry, if we're floundering a bit spiritually, recommit to God's covenant, what he has done for you. And the table is a perfect place this morning as we partake of it, the covenant meal, the meal of covenant renewal, to be reminded the price that God paid for your fellowship with him and his son. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the prophet Malachi and for what uh, your word says through this prophet. Pray, O Lord, that we would once again be reminded of the great, great price that you paid to secure our salvation, the covenant that you made before the foundation of the world, that it was ratified, the blood of Jesus on the cross, forecasted in the Old Testament sacrifices, made actual on the cross, and we draw from it as our, our great high priest intercedes for us in a moment-by-moment basis. Lord, help us not to lose sight of our position in you, the beloved. And I pray, O oh Lord, that we would go forth living lives that are in reaction to your covenant to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would bring glory to yourself through your church. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.